And we're live. I'm here with Marcel. Marcel, how you doing? Doing pretty well, yeah. You've been, you've been on before, but it's been a while, so go ahead and tell everybody a little, little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Marcel Gautreaux. I am a PhD candidate at Mason, that is to say George Mason University. I study Austrian economics, public choice, development economics, that is to say, I look at how government spends money and how poor countries become rich countries. Um, I would say those are the main salient facts about myself. Speaking of that last part, before we get into the book on poor countries become rich countries, um, it makes me curious. If you, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen um, Free the Twos from Mental Friedman on, on the whole Hong Kong stuff. Have you seen that? Or? I don't think I've ever watched. I've never actually watched any Milton Friedman content ever, I don't think. Not out of any kind of like necessity and partisanship. That I just never felt the need. Yeah. Oh, if you ever get a chance, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on here's a whole episode on Hong Kong, how it became from a poor country to a rich country compared to America. And it's pretty interesting. I I watched it before I really knew about economics, and I'm I kind of want to go back and rewatch and see how I, you know, see how I think he does. But I'd be interested to hear his thoughts on if you ever get a chance to watch it. What was I mean, is his story just something like um the British, like some British overseer refused to impose price controls and it kept the market free, like West Germany situation. Mainly, mainly he talks about the um the fact that they work for so little and how that's actually a good thing for them. Um, they work for so little. <coughs> yeah, they only get paid a whole bunch and how that's so it's it was very you'll work you know, for little, you'll own nothing and you'll enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Um that's what it was, it's an interesting documentary, especially for me getting right into libertarianism. But today we're talking about reclaiming the American right by Justin Romando. This has been in the workings for about a year, and I am the – I finished this book uh, 40 minutes ago because I am the world's biggest <laughs> procrastinator <laughs> at one year. But I'm glad I read it. It was, it was a good book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I read this book first um, – what is it now, 2023? Probably read it sometime around 20 – has it been after 2017 because it was after Trump was president. I mean, of course, he's still president, right? And it was um, – Sometime before the midterms of of, of a personal administration, so it must have been 2017, 2018. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I, I was um, I was a little surprised that the first two chapters were just covering um, the Trotskyists, pretty much. But I, I, he had a little part at the end of it, and so I can find it here actually, covering why he covered so much of the Trotsky stuff. Um, here it is. Uh, nope, that's not it. Hold on. Well, so one I can I work through. So for those who haven't read it, you know, first of all, you should stop listening, read the book. But the Romando goes in detail on what is kind of a passive meme in uh, paleo-libertarian circles. Or really, I think now, I'd say 50% of like, um, of esoteric writists will have this idea of like the sort of Trotsky to Neocon pipeline. You will see Pat Buchanan talk about this you know, Tom Woods, uh, people who travel in the Mises orbit will, will go with this line. And it'll be somewhat unclear as to what we mean by this. And so I will just, it's put through in more detail in the book. But the idea is that for a lot of people who became the neoconservatives, they started their career in like the 1930s as like card carrying members of the Communist Party. Indeed, one thing that I discovered when I was putting together a presentation based on this book or something else was that there are more substantive, direct, personal links between the Republican Party and the Socialist Party of Eugene V. Debs than between the Democratic Party and the Socialist Party of Eugene Debs. With Barack, like with the Democrats, you can kind of do a story with like, you know, Barack Obama, the National Lawyers Guild, like the Weathermen. You can kind of stitch together something like that, but you don't get anything nearly as damning 
as people like, you know, you know, Max Schatzman, who was part of, you know, whatever, Social Democrats USA, you know, getting kicked out of like half a dozen different communist organizations, partially for being annoying, but also because he was anti-Stalinist because he himself was a Trotskyist and then getting a job at like the American Committee for Cultural Freedom and then becoming like a major Republican thought leader. Uh, this happened to a lot of people. The, uh, the and socialists so, for uh, who are the socialists? Socialists for Nixon was it, yeah, uh, socialists uh, for Nixon was the idea. Very and, surprising. I've had, I never I never heard that before, but it was interesting. Yeah, the socialists for Nixon were. It was an it was an instance of the kind of argumentation that really leaves you, you know, almost thunderstruck. Where they said, you know, how most communists will say, uh, you know, you can't criticize our communist beliefs because of what's happening in the USSR because that's not real communism. The these people, what they said was, you know, North Vietnam is not communist. It's a Stalinist dictatorship. And therefore, because, you know, North Vietnam is Stalinist and not real communism and South Vietnam is apparently a democracy. That means that since democracy is like close to communism, that actually gives America almost an ethical mandate to bomb the shit out of North Vietnam. <laughs> it's. Yeah, the uh, the Trotskyists. I find it odd how many Trotskyists were in America. Honestly, like the the well the prevalence of um, Trotsky, especially since like, I was reading um I, I never read, I never read any Trotsky per se uh, directly, but his relationship to Stalin, the Lenin, the running out of the running out of Russia, the letters he'd write back and forth to the states and the Americans. Uh, I don't know what it is that made so that made Trotsky so appealing to so many of these people. But it is definitely an interesting connection to the study. It makes, me want, it makes me want to read some Trotsky, actually, to kind of see what the, what made him so appealing. Well, in a way, you know, even though Stalin was the guy that, you know, ended up in charge, it would make sense for Trotskyism to be sort of the mainline Marxist-Leninist thought in the United States. You know, you know, to believe Trotsky anyway, you know, Stalin was just a glorified bank robber before <laughs> he, you know, tricked the, the poor innocent Communist Party and single-handedly turned it into a terror state. You know, meanwhile, um, Trotsky is like the butcher of St. Petersburg. I mean, Trotsky was out there, you know, massacring, you know, starving tens of thousands of people, um, you know, going to prison and everything. So he and he was like, you know, the sort of the true philosopher between the two of them. So if you were in the United States, you know, and you were one of the God knows how many immigrants into the country that had communist sympathies. And then you said, like, OK, well, who's like our main person after Marx and Lenin? Who's next? Trotsky is kind of just the next guy. Yeah. Makes sense. See, I guess what's really interesting to me is the um, the amount of neoconservatives that kind of wrote about the end of history. Is is there was a very um, like what was it uh, Charles Krauthammer, for example? What's really about him? He, I watched him when I was a kid on Fox News as a guy in a wood sale, you know. So then yes. we the, then to read about him. Oh, actually, he he wasn't just a Fox News commentator. He actually wrote things and was like an actual member of things. And he just I always assume he's one of those like you know hot blondes that's up on Fox News randomly. You know? <laughs> it's uh, as I think about it too. I also only remember Charles Krauthammer when my mom was watching like the O'Reilly Factor or whatever, and then he was one like the talking heads there. And I was like, oh, this is an interesting person. I didn't even know my, he my, was. You know. My grandpa claimed to, my grandpa who uh, still watches Bill O'Reilly on YouTube claims Charles Krauthammer was like the greatest American who ever lived. He loves that guy, and I can't. I, can, I, can I can't. That statement in multiple ways. Wait, Bill O'Reilly is still active on YouTube. Bill O'Reilly, uh, Bill O'Reilly, and Glenn Beck. He watches those on YouTube. <laughs> I guess like, Bill O'Reilly, he's he's annoying, but he has such a fun way of doing the show that I kind of like every once in a while I tune in. You know, he's just a very it's like boomer energy. It's kind of fun. You know, I wonder if I were to go back and like 
watch Bill O'Reilly, would I find his personality endearing? Because, you know, when I was younger and I would like, you know, watch him in the corner, you know, I, I was always, you know, he was always interacting a lot with Jon Stewart. Like they, they, they were friends to the extent that you can be friends with somebody like Jon Stewart. And so, you know, since, you know, Bill O'Reilly was like the sort of the dumpy straight man of that, that some, something of a comedy duo. I wonder if, you know, now that I've fully outgrown Jon Stewart, will I now appreciate Bill O'Reilly? Probably not. But it's not. always a possibility. I, I can't hate I, – I, I, you know, we shouldn't like Bill O'Reilly, but anyone who gets a divorce and tries to get the um, the Vatican to, like, um, excommunicate his ex-wife, <laughs> that's, just, that's a ball <laughs> that's of moves. Ex- <laughs> I thought he was like, oh, he's going to start his own church or something? I mean, that's sort of the, the normal maneuver when you divorce. But this is – divorce is so like bad. a soccer player want... who moved to Saudi Arabia and tried to get them to change their laws and cohabitation so he wouldn't need to marry his girlfriend? What? <laughs> I did not yeah, hear about that. I think that. it's uh... – I don't think it's Ronaldo. It's some other guy. But some it's, people, it's, they will just move heaven and earth. Mainly so earth. new religions, you know, it's 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 yeah. wild. I mean, um, there's that old joke about uh Lucio started with a Mason because he wanted to bang a nun. <laughs> and it's just it's it, the, the pussy rules all. That's the way to put it. Um but yeah, there's there's a lot of um, I will say I like the amount of quotations he has here because like, like when you're watching a podcast or watching the news, you kind of you hear these names, but you never actually read them. But the fact that he, he, Romano is just constantly like quoting and quoting the like quoting Krauthammer, Stotsman, Burnham, Francis. It was very it was fun to kind of get yeah. a little tease about the audience thinkers and kind of get a little. But it kind of reminded this book very reminds me a whole lot of uh, Rothbard's um uh the old what's it let's watch book on the old white card again um betrayal the American, American right? white. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, the sort of an antiwar.com trademark, right? Ramondo does this, and Scott Horton does it, but less so, where everything they write is just, you know, it's like it's, it's worse than Wikipedia, right? There's more links than plain text in the article. But, you know, poor Ramondo, you know, typing a physical book, he can't, you know, put hyperlinks. So all he can do is just quote everybody in their own words. And, you know, and that's always, you know, for, for, for someone like me anyway. You know, it's always a struggle when you're like explaining something to people and like some insane thing someone else believes or that someone else is doing. And like, you know, well, where did you hear that? It's like, they said it. They said it. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I can't imagine trying to have them. This is why, when did, when did this book come out? It was, uh, I'm guessing Originally, like, like 2000s. Um, certainly like, before 9 11 because, um, yeah. But this is a probably before the internet, but this is like, internet was a way, um, no, that's just a reprinting date. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, was, the internet was probably around, but I doubt he was using it to find a bunch of stuff. I imagine having he, he probably had a huge like catalog. Yeah, first of published in 1993, then republished in 2008. 93. Wow. So he he had to track down a lot of stuff. That's impressive. That's yeah. He was doing this at the internet. I yeah, mean, it's a, the kind of you know he was libertarian, right? So <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is actually the first time I ever read anything by Romano. That was a. I was impressed. He seems like a very impressive fella. I'd mm-hmm. <coughs> say, what else is Romano written? He has this. He has never a dull moment. I think there's like a biography of Rothbard, but I don't think I own that. And I certainly remember what it's called. Yeah, I, I, I still need. I still need. To read, I read the Mises one of um from Hughesmon. I need to read the Rothbard one because that sounds interesting. Rothbard yeah, gets, last night of liberalism. Yeah. Oh, I may, I may not agree with Walsh about a whole bunch, but I still think that guy has some of the funnest. Like, I, you ever read like, the notes he wrote I can't on the side? Be on of the pages? show with somebody who doesn't agree with Rothbard? You lied to me. <laughs> I'm tricked. Sorry, you have to leave now. I understand. Um, but I was like, like I saw a, p- a picture of one of his like um annotated notes on the side of a Hayek book, and it just went "fuck you, Hayek." Mm. And I was like, I, just, I, I, he seemed 
Walk by, of all the people I've met, he seems the one I have the most fun talking to, like at Denny's at two o'clock in the morning. He just seems on the fun first floor of the Mises Institute. There's a library that has a bunch of books that Rothbard owns, and you know you can flip through each one, and you'll see it's like a bunch where he's annotated them. And it's always funny because he like, he, st- he clearly stopped reading a book and finding where it was and made, what made him do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and uh, the, uh, back, back to the book. Yeah, back to the book. The um the. The neocons, the rise of the neocons in America is actually it's very interesting to read about the specifically after like the uh, the Cold War or was it maybe after World War II the whole basically they had to write the Manifest Destiny and this you know it was the end of history and we are actually I have the quote here from Crowdham I'm trying to find it here um, here it is uh, common marketization marketization of the word it is a hue or is inevitably drawing drawing it is it is neither the West has to make it happen has to risk and work for a super uh, Super sovereign West, economically, culturally, and politically uh, hegemonic in the world. It's a. Uh, it is interesting to kind of see like the how, I think neocons nowadays are less you know, out, out of, what's what's the word here um, uh, for, for no, I can't think of the word for. They're less honest about what they actually want. But in back back then when they were just writing things, you couldn't you know see everything. Everyone starts on Twitter. The honesty they had in some of the more. The, the articles they write weren't read by the everyday American. So they're much more honest in their things, it seems like. Right nowadays, it seems like everyone can read everything so much easier. It seems like the neocons are a lot less honest in the things they want. Um, well, I would just say even that, even that bit about um, about the common marketization of the world. I mean, that's, thing, that's a thing neocons want, but it's not, you know, their real single issue, right? Like their real single issue yeah. is the Middle East. So, and I can imagine someone like Bill Crystal on Twitter, you know, he would never like to just tweet that like non sequitur. But mm-hmm. if you were to, he, I could imagine easily Bill Crystal saying something that sort of alludes to this as something he believes. And then some right winger like tries to call him on it and say like, oh, are you saying that you just want to be like some kind of globalist and, you know, suck in Ukraine into some American common market and then like totally erode our sovereignty. And he would just like, yeah. Yeah. And then he would just say, yeah, of course I do. <coughs> Probably. Um, so, you have anything you want to say on the, on the second on on Saltzman uh, before we move on? Because he's no chapters on him, but he's not. I got. To, I, I tried to look him up on YouTube to find anything on him. I can't find one YouTube video on the guy. Like he's um, very. I can't seem to find anything on him besides like Google articles, Wikipedia, and this book. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Max Shockman is primarily brought up because he's sort of the prototype of this transition. But there are other people like Sidney Hook. Um, mm-hmm. Who started out as a member of? Let me see. I have to write it down. Um, oh, of the American Workers Party, and then became um, founder of the American Committee for Cultural Freedom. And American Committee for Cultural Freedom was this sort of CIA sock puppet that was, you know, just outputting basically neoliberal propaganda all around different communist states. Um, if if there's somebody who's like, oh, is it, what does neoliberal mean? Just figure it out, right? Um, <laughs> So these people, you know, they always, they were in a communist movement. They were kicked out for a combination of either being annoying or being opposed to Molotov-Ribbentrop. Molotov-Ribbentrop, to be clear, there were there were like two generations of people leaving the Communist Party. I would say the first thing that caused people to leave were the Moscow trials. And then the second thing were uh, was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Act. So first was Stalin doing a purge of Communist Party officials who were disproportionately, let's say, minority ethnic. And then the second thing was uh, making a non-aggression pact with Hitler, who had a variety of political and racial positions that a lot of communists in the United States found uh, irreconcilable, uh, actually. So these were the two things that caused people to to abandon um, 
or, or, or not to ban it, but to really like find themselves truly not welcome in, in, in communist parties. And they would say, you know, I, you know, a, a refrain that you will hear for, we've been here for the past century, you know, I didn't leave the left, you know, they just got too radical for me, right? You would also see this um, in the 1960s where you had a lot of people that you took, you might say like sort of leading roles, even in like civil rights, you know, uh, but then they felt that, you know, the black radicals were getting too much into, you know, nationalism in certain third world countries. And like, oh, this is like way too, I, I can't tolerate this, right? And then they say, you know, the left has gotten too radical for me. Like it, it wasn't anything about America or like domestic policy that got them as such. Although I guess there was the case of like the Oceanville-Brownsville teacher strike, where I guess that was sort of a, a domestic policy that got certain like people in the American left to say, oh, I can't be part of this new radical left, right? But usually it was like foreign policy concerns, we'll say. Seeing the left, you know, supposedly take on a more dovish tone uh, either either a more dovish tone on communism or, you know, a more third worldist tone um, in, 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 in other people's countries. Hmm. Yeah, the, um, yeah, so we, um, moving on to like, the, the third chapter on, uh, uh, yeah, was it the third chapter? No, it was the, um, hold on, uh, sixth chapter on, on Colonel, uh, Colonel McCormick, who ran the Chicago Tribune. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that was. I guess that made me much more. I. I. I have right next to me Rothbard's uh, progressive air, um, and I'm reading about FDR and reading about um, the, the what was the uh, the story of the um, oh, what was it called the final post? No, it was the uh, I can't remember what it's called now. But the the story the Chicago Tribune broke about how uh, FDR promised everyone we're not going to go to war, and then they, you know, they shockingly story, he lied. Yeah, shockingly he lied. He, he altered was, the deal. Pray yeah. we don't alter it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the, uh, finding out because it's um, the overview of history is you know when we history, always reading the overview of things, you know. But to kind of get in, um, into the weeds of like reading like uh, from a reading a story about a reporter who broke things that happened, kind of to see how awful and how much they lied, you know. Like everyone, everyone kind of knows, okay, FDR probably lied to the American people, but it's not as often. It's not um, to the same extent when you read it in this book. Sometimes like, oh, he promised. Um, I always forget his name. The um, oh my god, I don't know why I can never remember Winston Churchill. He promised him he'd join the war and came back and say came back and every, every reporter was like he promised him this. He's like no, I didn't. I never promised him that. And then you know a few weeks later they find the uh, one to five one of the only five documents that are planning to you know start World War Two, and just well deny to join it. World War Two. Let's be right. yeah join World War Two. Sorry. Um, the yeah this kind of shows the 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 um. History of media. Reading reading history from like from a journalist perspective is always a very interesting thing. It makes me want to read Garrett Garrett more. Kind of just read the uh, the journalists who were the Times, you know. Yeah, and this is part of the thing, the part of the story that Romando is not one hundred percent clear, or or not rather, um, not the thing about the what was it called the Victory Plan affair, but broadly the story of Colonel McCormick. I, it's one criticism book. He does not quite tie it into a sort of load bearing pillar of the next chapter, where he. Um, again, if you travel in you know these sort of libertarian circles or or these old right paleocon circles, you will hear reference to Bill Buckley and National Review and the idea of how Bill Buckley you know purged the John Birch Society from it. And you know if you tell the story to somebody, sometimes you know if there's if they're they'll ask you like, hold on a second, you know why is there why is there like a moral right to be in any one particular conservative newspaper, right? They'll say you know why is it so bad that I mean, maybe it's just something about Buckley that he removed the JBS, but like, 
how can it be that you kicking this one group out of the editorial pages of like one newspaper gives you total control of the conservative movement? And Raimondo kind of touches on it, but there's another book that's even better for it. But the federal government really went all in starting in the 1940s and then uh, kicked it into even you know higher gear in the 1960s of really like destroying all right-wing or conservative media in the United States. In print, it started during World War II. And then over the radio, it started in 1962 or 63 or 64, sometime during the Kennedy, right at the beginning of the Johnson administration, where in collaboration with the head of the AFL-CIO, the government created something called the Fairness Doctrine, which for multiple reasons made it basically impossible to take any um, anti-government stance on the radio, which from 62 to 68 was, of course, or no, 62 to seven. No, no, 62 to 68, 69, right, was just run by Democrats. And to be clear, Republicans could not effectively weaponize this for themselves when they took power, when Nixon took power. But this is why, you know, somehow, as if by magic, um, National Review was one of the only newspapers left standing out of this purge. <laughs> so with um, Colonel McCormick, they got him basically on a campaign of harassment, you know, accusing him of like espionage and treason because of not only this thing with the victory plan, but later on they tried to accuse him of letting the Japanese know that we had like cracked their codes or something along these lines. Uh, and so, uh, and then Adelaide Stevenson, who ran some communist group, I don't know, look it up. Um, <laughs> He would actually go on to be the under the, the Kennedy administration. He would go on to be the American ambassador to the United Nations, unless I'm getting my names mixed up, because he famously during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I'm like 90 percent sure he was the one who was like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, you know, are there weapons in Cuba? Yes or no. Don't wait for the translation. Yes or no. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like 90 percent sure that's Adelaide Stevenson. If I'm lying with an agenda, somebody can just, you know, mm -hmm. correct me on this in the comments. I won't read it. But, you know, that, that, I'm pretty sure that's, that's the case. So that, so between uh, FDR harassment during the war, then of print, and then a second campaign against radio by the, the, the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, that is how it came to be that, you know, National Review, like seemingly the only conservative media left, which was run by a former CIA agent, if they said John Burt Society can't be on their, uh, on their pages, then it's either, the, it's off to the mailing list, right? You know, it would be, you know, if you could just imagine a situation where, you know, you go on YouTube and like all of the right wing media accounts that were there in 2016 are gone and everyone else you see is like a Daily Wire affiliate. And then, you know, some guy gets dropped from the Daily Wire and then their career is, you know, somehow basically over, even though they have a patron and a mailing list. If you can imagine a crazy situation like that, then you might be able to see why it's important that National Review could just unilaterally or how it could be the case. The National Review could sort of unilaterally set, um, you know, the Overton window for conservatism in the United States. Yeah. Now, the history of um, history of the controlled right or the permissible right, as I think uh, Francis called it, uh, controlling the basically the right, the, the right being the uh, enforcement arm for the left, of controlling the uh, controlling the Overton window is always very interesting. It makes me, I need I need to read uh, Garfield's uh, The Great Purge on uh, the National Review going after everybody else. Um, but I mean, it's, it's I mean it's still a thing, you know, people. Uh, it, and I've seen some people talk about it, like it's happened and stuff like that. But I'm just looking at this. Uh, I mean, today Daily Wire and Stephen Crowder whole situation. You know, the um, I mean, not to get too deep into the weeds on that because uh, it's a whole big thing. But you know, I think that's um, 
the Daily Wire saying um, that if you get demonetized or get a YouTube strike, they will dock your pay is just in being a force bringing at a big tech for conservative voices. Yeah, yeah. So admittedly, I I, I, I I don't sympathize too much with Crowder on this issue for you know for, for people like listening to this episode somehow like ten years in the future. There's a controversy happening, and it's January of 2023 where uh, <laughs> Stephen Crowder is. Um, making a fuss because the daily wire gave him a contract that said that if he gets like deplatformed from any particular um tech thing like they dock his pay by like some massive percentage and you know i'm always happy to join in an attack on daily wire men shapiro though i have to admit it does seem pretty straightforwardly logical that you know if daily wire is hiring you to produce content on youtube and then you can't produce content on youtube then maybe somehow yeah. your income like there are like, obligations like, to pay you to modify this wise Business-wise, they are 100% correct, in my opinion, because yeah, yeah. um, the Jews are going to be correct business-wise. Um, <laughs> I disagree. Uh, but I think I think Crowder's uh, – the whole, the whole debate basically is just, you know, business or movement. You know, they're trying to – like, are they – my big problem is the, the Daily Wire Adams is like, it's like the dissident voices of America almost. Like, they're trying to say that they are the ones who are – the, the, the big tech hates us, but they also enforce the same – they also are beholden to all the big tech's rules. It just seems um, – it's it, it definitely good. It's interesting. I'm looking to, I'm fo- looking forward to seeing how it develops. And I'm probably going to write an article on it soon because there's a lot of different ways to take it. Yeah. I'm actually um, I'm trying to, I really want to get this guy's name right because I sure hate to like throw out a name that I think is the guy and then find out that I named somebody like absolutely <laughs> terrible. So let me just check and make sure that I don't say the wrong thing. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, Mark I, I, Dice. Um, Mark Dice put out a video where he showed that actually Ben Shapiro, and, or the Daily Wire rather, uh, is a sponsor of Facebook to the tune of something like $750,000 a year. Like it was, they, they paid like $7 million over 10 years. And Ben Shapiro has been, has had like personal dinners at Mark Zuckerberg's house. And so interestingly enough, has like Dave Rubin. So in that sense, it's actually more plausible. Like that's a far stronger case that these guys are, you know, sort of in bed with big tech. The problem is, like, Steven Crowder has also been at those dinners. So, you know, he can't really, you know, that one won't stick. I mean, he could try, but, you know, it won't stick. He did bring it up. He, did, he mentioned in his video about going to cocktail parties with Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, okay, he, he did. Okay. He said, he kind of said offhandedly, like it was a joke, but now you mentioned that for Mark Dice. What's um Peter Mark Dice? I I don't I can't stand Mark Dice, and for the longest time I got him and Jeff Dice confused and had Jeff Dice blocked on Twitter. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, That's I, like... I got, my brain got confused. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this guy. Fuck this guy, and I blocked him. Fuck <laughs> Jeff. That's, that's, that's gonna, you know, you know, I'm gonna be a, you know, Jeff Dice is gonna call me into his room, and you know, he's you know, gonna have a shotgun perched behind me. You know, it's, uh, let's see, he's gonna be holding it like um, David Gordon's gonna be holding it, and then you know, Jeff's gonna be like. Marcel, I have a voice of you saying "fuck Jeff Dice." Can you explain yourself? <laughs> yeah, it's um, no, the, the whole Daily Wire really is a new National Review, which is um interesting to look at it in that way. You know, it makes yeah. uh, and the big tech being the you know just the does a wing of the CIA pretty much. You know, it's um, it's not something shocking. Everyone kind of like kind of just knows it, even on our circles at least. But to see it kind of outright. It's it's too interesting, you know. It makes it easier to explain to somebody. Mm-hmm. What was um? There's a recent event where or, or or incident where what's Lauren Southern I think was doing some kind of expose of um Rebel Media I think it is a Canadian thing the guy McGinnis used to work for yeah and she talked about how I think she lost her job there because she didn't want to go on a let's say work sponsored field trip 
Although it was interesting how she described it. You know, that particular field trip was actually just funded by the country in question that they were supposed to go to. But Rebel Media was still trying to like do like a, a GoFundMe and like raise money from their readers anyway <laughs> to go on like a free trip, which, you know, you kind of have to admire the, um, uh, I also want to say bravery or ballsiness or some other kind of something yeah. about it. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, it, it's the kind of guts that makes you, you know, kill your parents and then ask the judge to have mercy because you're an orphan. <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that's that's a pretty that's a pretty good um, analogy. I like that. A similar whatever it is. Um, but now it's a uh, really about the Chicago Tribune. What's a Conan McCormick? It's um, it definitely I think cements it how important it is to have a. A media, a media, a media um, at the time specifically, a, a media on your side kind of thing, you know. Nowadays, with Substack and you know, Twitter and YouTube and podcasts and Rumble and everything, you kind of say everyone is their own media, everyone can be a media journalist now. Um, but having yeah, a, yeah. Uh, but it seemed like back then, maybe even now, having a legitimate, um, or semi legitimate news way out, uh, out, outlet to kind of get the news out to people, it seemed very important. And it seemed, I don't know how we could apply it to today because everyone has a Substack, you know, or what would be the what would be the current example of someone that for just didn't write, but or whatever whatever this group is, you know? But it's definitely something that made me uh, one well, of the more the libertarian movement in the '90s that uh, libertarian. It's like um, libertarianism now and a political philosophy uh, that requires all members to gather and exchange um, magazine subscriptions with each other, right? <laughs> so I think uh, so. Running a Substack is kind of like you know being back then running a magazine. And, and Reason Magazine is sort of the the last man standing of those of those wars because uh, like the Rothbard Rockwell report was another one of those and obviously that's just got like just folded into Mises. It's not the same as Mises Wire, but I think Reason Magazine is the last one that um, you know is exactly the same organization that it was in the past. And I guess you can, it's kind of easy to see why, since you know it, when you have the full backing of the Ayn Rand cult of personality, you know it's kind of hard to fail. Yeah, absolutely. It's um. But so, um, all respect to Reason Magazine, which you know isn't much, but like all respect to Reason Magazine, for, um, you know, you survived the market test. <laughs> um, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't try to finish the final chapter, but the one before that about uh, James Buchanan that was an interesting chapter because uh, I've, I've been reading some James Buchanan, looking into him. He's a very, I don't know how we kind of like he was before my time of like pay, pay attention to politics, but Wait, he you seemed like someone. Pat Buchanan or James? Yeah, Buchanan? Pat Buchanan. Sorry. Okay. Yep. I don't know. I always want to call him James Buchanan. Uh, no, Pat Buchanan. Um, definitely someone I want to look more into. You know, I, I have one of his books. I've yet to read it, but I, he's definitely someone I want to be reading a bunch more upcoming and going going forward because he seemed like a very specifically for his time to be a to be to be a media savvy guy. He would throw down with anyone publicly like that. It seemed like a very he seemed like an early Trump. Like the way the way the book described him, it seemed like almost like an early Trump kind of guy. You know, someone who either had even though media this and, book was written way before. Trump is a political phenomenon was a thing. And actually, when this book was republished in 2008, at this time, uh, I think that I think Donald Trump had in the 2004 election run the Reform Party and um, like just completely derailed uh, Pat Buchanan's uh, attempt at a third party run. There's a documentary you can watch on Netflix called Get Me Roger Stone that talks about uh, how Donald Trump was saying, you know, Pat Buchanan is what is it? Uh, He's obviously a racist and a Hitler lover in some form. Let's talk about like unleashing a dog that comes back to bite you. But Pabby kind of had like no hard feelings about it because, you know, he endorsed Donald Trump anyway. So, you know, <laughs> and since Trump is literally Hitler, I guess Trump was right. There was, um, let me string this together properly. 
Um, we don't see this anymore. Uh, I don't think uh, nowadays, you know, as you know my feelings on this, but, you know, right-wingers on Twitter, the libertarian spaces, you know, the new thing on which people compete to take on novelty takes is less sort of niche conservative ideologies and uh, let's say niche views on metaphysics. But, you know, let's say around two years ago, the big thing was claiming the title of like paleocon or, or things like that. Um, and I guess nowadays we have some people who identify as, oh, I don't know, things like post-libertarian. Yeah. Right. But back then, uh, Tucker, and, and, and again, by back then, I just mean like 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. Right. Um, Tucker Carlson, people were associating him with paleoconservatism, which is not quite right. So, yeah. And I guess I want to give this a glossary to people. So the old right, right, that refers to the politics of the Republican Party starting in, let's say, 1865, right, after, you know, after Lincoln, and then going out to the New Deal, okay? That is what, like, the old right refers to, and it is the party of industrial policy, of you know, the politics of Northern industrialists, you know, it's a final, you know, after the final triumph over the Southern planter class, right, you know, we're making the full swing into this um, middle, like literally middle American Germanic, like Chicago politics. That's what the old right is. And Lincoln was from Illinois, I'm pretty sure. Who knows anything, if anything's true about Lincoln anymore, maybe he was born in Kenya, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but uh, paleoconservatism, uh, was not contiguous with the old right, although Pat Buchanan is emblematic of it, but there, even though Pat Buchanan is a protectionist, you know, as far as American trade with the outside world, it also follows that same, at least internally, that same logic of free markets, where Pat Buchanan was for abolishing OSHA, right? Pat Buchanan was for, you know, he was basically Rothbardian as far as, like, how New York to trade with California or how New York to trade with Alabama, right? He was Rothbardian on that sense. However, when it came to how, you know, America to trade with China, right? I mean, he's Pat Buchanan. Yeah. So Tucker Carlson is not really a paleoconservative and he's definitely not even really old right because Tucker Carlson is, you know, somehow Tucker Carlson is like the only personality on TV that champions the dignity of the American worker. And, you know, again, all respect to Pat Buchanan, but back in the day, I don't think he really gave too much of a shit about the dignity of the American worker yeah. relative to, like, other American workers, right? You know, the American worker relative to Chinese workers, yes. But the, you know, a worker in Pennsylvania relative to a worker in Texas, eh. Yeah. You know, um, Tucker Carlson is definitely an interesting figure that he mentioned. Like, I don't really – he's not someone you can easily place in any of the uh, conservative camps, like I would say. You know, he kind of is his – He's not a Fox News conservative. He's not like Dave, he's not like Michael Knowles. He's not Dave Rubin. He's not you know he's um he's I don't know Dave Rubin. Like, he's in the conservative camp as the liberal wing. He's a liberal you know he's Dave Rubin's just gay. That's all I'm gonna say about him. Gay Dave Rubin is the right opposition, right? Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin is basically Nikolai Bukharin, right? He's the he's the right opposition in the communist revolution. Mm. Yeah, Tucker's um I, I've been watching more and more Tucker lately, and he's. He's fantastic. I, 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 pay, um, I don't know if this is true, but apparently one of his like, executives or one of his producers got out with his like a frog on on Twitter who's being racist. Of course. <laughs> Which I just imagine. I, 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 I really hope it's true that Tucker has some anon account he sit posts from. 
you know, which okay, which should tell anybody here, like, you know, if you're if you're entertaining any plans of like changing the Republican Party from the inside or like you know, maybe getting a job at Fox News, what's waiting for you, right? You know, you try so hard, get so far, and then you know they find your frog account and it's like, oh well, oh yeah. spaghetti, right? You know, you you you, you know, you got to go like sulking back to like Michael Heiss or whatever. It's like you know, Mr. Heiss, you know, I'm sorry, I tried to be a Republican, I tried to be a Republican. Please take me back. Now the but the the old right is definitely um, I'm I'm really hoping like the uh, like what is it the old the old glory club on YouTube. Have you watched any of them? The old glory mm-hmm. club. No, the uh, interesting group of like you know American distant white people, Pete Quinones, Owen McIntyre, Paul Fahrenheit. Ah, uh, okay. Um, Wait, hold on. Quinones and McIntyre are like in the same circle in this sense. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, McIntyre. I don't know if he's like a part of the group, but he's on it often. So I, you know, yeah, I yeah. Both him in there. Um, it's definitely a they, they're very focused. American, they're very Americana focused. You know, they're very American. You know, it's the old glory club developed by America. I would love to see him kind of cover more of the old right stuff. I think the old uh, Garrett Garrett, John T. Flynn. Godfrey, mm-hmm. Samuel Francis, these are all really interesting, specifically Francis and Godfrey. Like, um, like God, I think Godfrey needs to be talked about more in these kind of circles. He's someone who is really, really interesting. Have you ever, have you ever read a multiculturalism? No, the only Paul, uh, yeah, Paul Godfrey thing I've read is um, War and Democracy, and then I read just about everything he publishes on um, on Uns. Yeah, well, yeah, multiculturalism and after liberalism. He wrote two books. Uh, no, wait, uh, I'm sorry. I've never heard of Uns. I don't know what that is. I just said that word. I, I don't know who he is, but I disavow. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, what was it? Um, someone explained it. I think it was a uh, in Populist Delusion, Academic Games. He kind of said it was a uh, managerial revolution from Burnham, the rise and enemies by Francis, and then after liberalism, multiculturalism. I got by Godfrey, kind of like a series. He read those in, in order. Like that, and you're gonna get an understanding of like they're all kind of connected to each other, kind of build off of the last one, which is uh sure. Yeah, well, like, I guess we didn't really talk about James Burnham. Like, I mean, we, but James Burnham was um sort of you know he was James Burnham was in many ways a sort of odd one out in this neoconservative clique. Um, in one aspect because of his sort of inveterate honesty. So when he was in the American Committee for Cultural Freedom, when it was revealed to be a CIA front. Everybody was like, oh, you know, goodness me. I didn't know that when I was like, you know, pretending to be a, a social, you know, when I was doing like socialism for Richard Nixon and, you know, you know, criticizing uh, Moscow, like, I didn't know I was working in like a CIA front. And James Burnham was like, yes, we are. I knew it. <laughs> I knew the whole time. Uh, and his column in National Review, I think was called the Third World War. So James Burnham, you know, something about him in this group, he was like, I, I see no, I have no compulsion to lie, as you were saying, to lie about what I stand for. <laughs> You know, I he's like Alex Jones. I want war. God <laughs> wants me to wage war. Although I, I'm pretty sure Burnham was an atheist. Hey, almost certainly, yeah. Yeah. The, um, I gotta say, my favorite. How was it? I hit the book. My favorite line from the whole book is in the first page. Um, I'm saying fine here. So uh, here it is. No, that's the introduction. Um, some Rothbard. In a lifetime of political writing, James Burnham showed only one fleeting bit of positive interest in individual liberty, and it was a call in National Review for the legalization of firecrackers. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. It was like, you know, Americans should, I think Americans should have access to explosive guns, uh, explosives, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, oh, another thing um, people should. Um... Oh, yes, another thing you should read about this book 
is in the chapter we're talking about, chapter nine, the Pelican Revolt, it talks about the smears that Pat Buchanan had to face when he was opposing the first Gulf War and how well that rhymes. You know, So for me, I'm 27, so I was eight years old when we invaded Iraq, and one of my you know, life-defining moments was having the kids at school gaslight me on whether or not Saddam Hussein did 9-11. You know, I, I knew that it wasn't Saddam, but I didn't remember the name of Osama bin Laden. I just knew that Saddam Hussein sounds like a different name of Osama bin Laden. <laughs> And, you know, all the kids are like, no, 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 he didn't. And, like, a teacher had to, you know, let me know. So, for me, it was the, the, the Iraq War that really, like, was, like, red letter. But luckily, apparently, if I were, like, even born 10 years earlier, I could have got the same experience when we bombed Iraq the first time. Yeah. Um, no, the, that whole chapter on the spewing of uh, Buchanan, calling him anti-Semitic, was very um, – it seemed like it was a – Illuminating. Uh, Illuminate. Yeah, I was there. Like, oh, that's when they saw doing it. You know, they kind of. Like, uh, I think. I think. I think that smear has gotten into utility a bit earlier than that. Yeah. Not say, but it was very um, not starting, but very um, <sighs> telling. I guess you know, kind of, kind of. It's like it's like not seeing. It was the used against the John Birch Society. On actually, it was used against um, uh, Joseph Sobrin, who wrote for National Review. He was a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, and uh, it was how we got a very amazing line. From um, from uh, come on, I'm like losing his name. The, the the guy who ran National Review, William F. Buckley. It's uh, you know, one is tempted to laugh at an ordinate power, even as one deplores it. Uh, which he said this after he fired Joseph Sobrin for you know, uh, for certain foreign policy views that he had. And the um, no, like Buck Buckley, the National Review. Like I I can't stand and then my hear Buckley. Sorry, anytime I read him, I, I I can't I can't stand him. But just the way he carries himself and he talks to people, it's something like a smug assholeness that I kind of just I, I I I like it, you know. Mm-hmm. Like watching him do like the uh, what was that one? Um, his firing line with Warren Buckley. Yeah, like yeah. I love watching that show. Like he he's he's wrong most of the time, but he's just so much fun to watch because he's just such a dick and so smug about it. It's like yeah. my, it's like watching Michael knows nowadays, you know. We're like, oh, you're not right, but you're fun to watch. <laughs> There's um one section in the book also. I'm, I think I'm just going through, go through the list and says we were passes this uh, yeah. 42 minute mark, which is something that Romando claims. And then he cites Rothbard and I checked the Rothbard citation. And as far as I can tell, it's like a personal conversation, <laughs> but um, I'll just read it here. It's on the Korean war where it's, so this is Romando in reclaiming the right. He writes in betrayal of the American right. Murray Rothbard reveals that Buffett, that is to say, um, uh, Representative Howard Buffett, had been told by Senator Bridges, Republican New Hampshire, that Admiral Roscoe Hillencoder, head of the CIA, had so testified in secret before the Senate Armed Services Committee at the outbreak of the war, that is, that um, the U.S. had been the real instigators of the Korean police action. Uh, for his indiscretion in testifying, Admiral Hillencoder was soon fired by President Truman and was little heard from again in Washington. For the rest of his life, Buffett carried on a crusade to have Congress declassify the Hillencoder testimony without success. So there's two things. One, I'm pretty certain I'm butchering the name Hillencoder. This is clearly like some kind of German name, but I don't know how to pronounce. It's also kind of wild just how many of like our generals during World War II were themselves German. Like how on earth we had like General Eisenhower prosecuting our war against like man, wasn't it like 20 years ago we made it illegal to speak German on the phone? Like how, how times do change? Yeah. But second off, I've been trying to find any other details on this Hill and Coder testimony. I mean, I can certainly see that um, that Representative Buffett and I have been found was trying to have the testimony declassified. 
but I can't find any more. Like it all cycles back to Rothbard. So if anybody can like, I don't know, want to do research on this and help me find more on this Hillencoder testimony. That's H I L L E N K O E T E R. Admiral Hillencoder, fired by President Truman. If anyone can find more on that testimony about the U.S. somehow starting the Korean War, ultimately my worldview does not live or die on who started the Korean War. Um, there are far more interesting wars that uh, you can investigate, but it's still an interesting question, I think. Absolutely. If I once it's once it's posted, I'll hopefully we find somebody who can investigate that for you because that does sound like an interesting question. Yes. Um, okay, this is the first time I've actually highlighted a book because there's so many things I wanted to remember for it. Uh, I don't normally highlight books, but there's so many things like I gotta remember that for later. So I, was, I never write highlight. in books. I never highlight books. It's I, I, the most I'll do is like you know a post-it I'll put in. Mm. But, I normally yeah. I I normally you don't. See, like but... this book has gotten kind of like messy. Like even the film is coming off of the cover mm. for whatever reason. But um, I mean, but I never write in my books. I always leave them because you know, what if some future person wants to read the book and they just see my notes? Like then they'll their reading experience will be corrupted. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm the opposite. I want uh, if I have kids, I want to give them my book so they can see our notes in them. Um, Actually, you know, you know, writing on books is like you know taking your daughter out to get a tattoo. Like I mean, you could, but why? <laughs> um, where was it here? Um, nope, that wasn't it. Uh, I'm trying to find one to highlight and highlight things. All right, this is a this is an interesting one. This is from I think it was a Dante Flynn. Mm -hmm. It's not one's raids against the Italian German warlords. The test is how many of the essential principles of fascism do you accept? And he was writing that in reference to how he believed the America was becoming uh, fascist to fight the fascist. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. I always feel like, I mean, there's a certain danger of, like, accepting liberal premises, even on that point. Like, yes, he's right. Like, the American, the, the transformation of the American economy, you know, between 1930 and 1945, like, the country just became, like, fundamentally unrecognizable legally. So that that is true. Whether or not this was, you know, moving towards fascism, I think, you know, more politely managerialism, right, as James Burnham would have called it, was a better description. You know, all the people that were responsible for this, you know, economic transformation, you know, were, were you know, are not really resented enough for their leading role. You know, all these people were like members of labor unions. These people were like, yeah. left wingers. They were communists. Yeah, that, my point, my, my thing is that I never, I actually don't know anything about Italian fascism besides what I read from Ebola, which apparently I've heard is not <laughs> like representative of actual Italian fascism. Um, and so I really don't know, like when someone says fascism, like I really don't know what they mean unless they were referencing Evola specifically. Um, I, in my mind, I always just say, you know, fascism is the imposition of middle class <laughs> values by force. Uh, it's, you know, like if you ever want to know what fascism is, think about how well, there used to be a situation where, um, you know, every company had its own, you know, every, every phone company had its own like special charging port. And then the EU had to do a regulation that, uh, you know, you have to use the same one. And like, you know, you hear a libertarian say like, oh, you know, they're selling something in the market. And then they say, well, you know, what if the phone companies, you know, instead of giving you the charging port you want, what if they said, you know, well, what if we just remove the charging port and made, made us do it wireless? Fascism is the middle class bourgeois impulse you have to like say, what if we shot you, you know, <laughs> put the charger back. That impulse where, you know, it's not just bourgeois interests, right? Because Marx had this idea that, um that uh, the state is the executive committee of the bourgeoisie because it promotes like free markets and property rights. And that's not fascism. F 
fascism is like the sort of virtues that you as a uh, I mean, it's really hard. To, it, it, it's hard to say it's European. I mean, certainly Europe was the only continent, right? The only diaspora to have a bourgeois class. But that sort of feeling that you get that there are some market practices that not only should be prevented, but that rule of law, the rule of law that makes it possible for you to have a market actually takes a secondary backseat. You can also think of fascism as like, um, you know, this is like a, a very coarse straw man here but um you think about a situation hypothetically where somebody makes some kind of contract that says they're allowed to like have sex with their employees right and for some reason nobody's like passed an actual law against it and you might it might be the case that uh you know you contrive some kind of court ruling or you just pass a new law to stop this and he's like, okay, no more having laws like that. And that's all compatible with like a yeah. sort of capitalist bourgeois mentality of like, or, or bourgeois interests of like, you know, contracts need to be, you know, enforced, but some contracts have got to protect the integrity of the market. The fascist impulse is the one that says, you know what, I actually don't care about rule of law as such. I don't really care about like, you know, expectations. I think that like, we should just shoot the guy who wrote that contract, right? Because my, I, as like a well-dressed middle-class person, find that to be like objectionable. And then, you know, a sort of capitalist would say, well, I don't know about that. We can just change the law here. You know, we can't punish somebody for a crime that wasn't a crime when it happened. And fascism was like, yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. Actually, I think we can do We can totally do that. Right. And so, you know, so fascism is when like enough people start catching the vibe that like there's no political solution and we're just going to enforce, we're just, you know, we'll enforce laws on a case by case basis. You know, we're just going to be taking your property. And then if you say, well, you can't take it because that's like a hypocrite, that's hypocritical because it conflicts with some other ruling. And then, you know, the, the fascist is sort of jotting it down. Like, why don't you tell me everything else that this is just like, you know, you can't take my paintings. If you seize my paintings, I mean, me investing in paintings is no different than like investing in the stock market. And the fascist is like, note to self, steal from <laughs> stock market next. Right. That's fascism. <laughs> right. That's that yeah. impulse, that mobilization of like bourgeois resentment against the rule of law system that makes, you know, a bourgeois lifestyle possible. Mm. That's a very like sort of ersatz Marxist analysis of like how I would define fascism. But yeah, so I always say fascism is the imposition of middle-class values by force of arms. I might've taken that from somebody, but God knows I don't remember who anymore. It's a good, uh, it's, it's, from what I know about fascism, it seems like fascism seems like a good description. It sounds, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we're coming up on the end. We only got about uh, 10 minutes left. Uh, what are you, any, Final, final thoughts on the book, conclusions, anything else you want to cover? Um, there was one thing that uh, Romando talks about here that I didn't really get to, which was um, um, Max Adorno, or was it Theodore Adorno? Something. Uh, A-D-O-R-N-O, and his book on the authoritarian personality. And <laughs> this was... Yeah, and it's the idea that, you know, and you can, you can um, I think if you go look at on IDR labs where you can take, you know, for those of you who know how to get your, like your MBTI, your Hogwarts house tested, right. You can go look uh, on IDR labs. I think it's like an authoritarian personality test and you'll see, and I, and I have an article about this on my Substack, and it's about the wave about how um, the, the principal elements of fascism, it's a combination of like sexual repression, um, you know, uh, uh, unsophisticated or, or, or an opposition to overly sophisticated thinking. Let me just find the list of things that are fat, that are fascism according to Adorno. No problem, go ahead. Mm. Yeah, this is a great radio, but you know, I can, I can, we'll record it, so I'll just edit the silence out later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 
The elements of the authoritarian personality are conventionalism, that is rigid adherence to conventional middle-class values, authoritarian submission, that is to say submissive, uncritical attitudes towards idealized moral authorities of the in-group, authoritarian aggression, tendency to be on the lookout for and to condemn, reject, and punish people who violate conventional values, anti-introception, that is opposition to the subjective, the imaginative, the tender-minded, a superstition and stereotypy, the belief in mystical determinants of the individual's fate, the disposition to think in rigid categories, power and toughness, that is a preoccupation with the dominant submission, strong, weak, leader-follower dimension, identification with power figures, overemphasis upon the conventionalized attributes of the ego, exaggerated assertion of strength and toughness, destructiveness and cynicism, that is generalized hostility, vilification of the human, projectivity, the disposition to believe that wild and dangerous things go on in the world, and the projection outwards of unconscious emotional impulses, and sexual moralism, that is exaggerated concern with sexual goings-on. So, you know, if you care about what people are doing in the privacy of their own bedroom, you know, you have an exaggerated concern with sexual goings-on, that is a sign of an authoritarian personality. And so Adorno created the F-scale test. Um, I took it. I got a, what did I get? I got a 55 on that test. Uh, my highest score was in power toughness, 71%. And my lowest score was in authoritarian submission at 29%. Anyway, this test was administered to people that wanted to be teachers and cops and federal agents, right? So, you know, as soon as the book came out, uh, and I can't for the life of me remember when the book came out, but Adorno was, you know, what is it? Uh, a Frankfurt School postmodern, right? You know, I mean, in the literal sense, he was part of the Frankfurt School. And I think that's probably its most famous cultural output. But again, starting you know, in the 60s and 70s, you really saw like prospective government employees being tested by this postmodern Marxist's test of, um, you know, whether or not you were susceptible to, to being a fascist. Uh, Romando talks about Adorno and he talks about the authoritarian personality. I just want to toss in some other things about that test and it's real political implications, right? And there's always a temptation, you know, we laugh, right? And, you know, I've, I freely admit, you know, if anybody's asking, yes, I got a 55 on the F scale test, right? <laughs> you know, we laugh about it now, but again, in the past, right? I mean, if you wanted to be a, fe a federal agent, granted, I do want to do that, a little bit suspicious, but if you want to be a federal agent, like this could have affected your ability to get a job, which again, mm -hmm. has forward implications for how federal law enforcement acts, you know, you know, starting in the 60s, you know, deciding who gets to join the FBI in the 1960s affects who runs the FBI in, say, the mid-90s, right? These things have forward, um, yeah. forward-going effects. So other things to note. So I mentioned a few books while we were talking. So you don't need to read The Authoritarian Personality, obviously. But a book you should read is The Radio Right by Paul Matzko. And it talks about government censorship of conservative broadcast radio starting in the 60s in collaboration with like known communists. Another one is Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell, which talks about other goings on in the 1960s that sort of intersect with, you know, the development of the conservative movement. And um, I'd say those are the main two that are relevant to this book here. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, I'll make sure those books, those books are in the description for anybody who wants to read them. Uh, well, Marcel, I've been to show. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I know it took, it took one year to get it done, but we'll have to set something up again soon and take two years to record that as well. Um, yeah, we can, re we can read the rest of the chapters. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, Marcel, thank you for coming on. Where, where can people find you at? What are your plugs? Um, you can find me primarily on Twitter. I am at Anarchy in Black. 
uh, for those of you in the audience who don't have me blocked for objecting <laughs> to certain vocabulary words. Uh, as well, you, I have a Substack, um, which is always the pinned link on my Twitter. And I'd say that's mainly it. Well, thanks for man. It's been a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Um, everyone, like, subscribe. Thanks for listening. Um, all the YouTube stuff. Website will be back up soon, hopefully. If it's not already up by the time you're watching this, make sure you subscribe on Patreon to get episodes a week early. Uh, more live readings, more guests, more stuff coming out soon. Uh, stick around. Hopefully, it's fun. <laughs>